0: Father, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It is good news for us that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Father, you are in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. And so we ask that by your Spirit this morning we would be still and know that your Son, our Savior, is God, that the Lord of hosts is with us, and that you are indeed good. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 16, and in your pew Bible, in the rack in front of you, it's page 453. We're going to look at Psalm 16 this morning, and this is the first psalm in a series on, a four-week series on the book of Psalms that uh, I will be preaching and Abe Stratton will be preaching um, the, the last two Sundays here in June. Almost 500 years ago... The Heidelberg Catechism was written, and question one is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And then the Heidelberg provides this answer, that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The Heidelberg Catechism thought it important to begin the catechism with the question, what is our only hope in life and in death? Because really that's the question that presses itself upon us. Every single day, sometimes we push it to the side, we try to run from it, hide from it, cover it, we're confronted with the question, what is our only hope in life today and in death whenever that may happen? Back when I was youth pastor the first time around, 15 years ago, in 2002, we pulled into the parking lot and our son Daniel, who was three years old at the time, stopped breathing. It was right by the Church offices, between the church offices and the teen house. Our son stopped breathing. Melissa got him breathing, called uh, emergency vehicles. They came, took him to the hospital, and five weeks later he died. And his funeral was held in this very room. For the next year, every Sunday... On our way to church, so we lived over by Cherrydale and we would pass his cemetery on the way here. We would stop at his grave. I would pull out my camera, put it on a tripod, set it up with a timer. And our family would stand at Daniel's grave and I would read Psalm 16, which is our psalm this morning. And I did that, we did that for 52 weeks Because we wanted his suffering and our grief to be swept up, gathered up into Psalm 16. Ever since Peter, in Acts 2, quoted Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 as proof that the grave could not hold Jesus that God the Father would break Jesus out from the grave. Ever since Peter preached that sermon and quoted Psalm 18 to prove the resurrection of Jesus, Christians have found great hope and comfort in Psalm 16. It is Psalm 16 that gives us a great hope of who Jesus is and what it is the Father did for him at the cross when he raised him from the grave. It's a psalm of great confidence in the Father's goodness. And that's how I want us to see it this morning. Psalm 16 is a prayer of confidence in the Father's goodness in life and in death. Now, before we continue... With this introduction to Psalm 16, let me spend a few minutes introducing the four-sermon series that Abe Stratton and I are going to do. I'm doing Psalm 16, and next week, Psalm 22, and then Abe's doing Psalm 45 and Psalm 110. The book of Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. One scholar says that the New Testament contains 326 quotations and allusions from 115 of the 150 psalms. So the New Testament considers the book of Psalms not just what reveals New Testament truth, but contains the very substance of New Testament truth. Jesus quoted the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. Jesus lived in the Psalms. The Psalms found their way upon his lips. The the, the Psalms were the prayer book of Jesus. They were the hymn book of Jesus. Third century church father, Athanasius wrote that the Psalms are a mirror of the soul of everyone who sings them. They enable him to perceive his own emotions and to express them in the words of the Psalms. In its pages you find portrayed man's whole life, the emotion of his soul, and the frames of his mind. So it should not surprise us then that the man of sorrows, Jesus, quoted from the Psalms in his moments of deepest distress. So as our great high priest who has been touched with the feeling of our weaknesses, Jesus took the Psalms and made them his own. In his darkest seasons, in his darkest moments. Probably the, the most well known psalm is Psalm 22, because Jesus actually quotes the first verse of Psalm 22 upon his lips at the crucifixion, where he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So at the moment of his deepest distress, Jesus takes Psalm 22, the first verse, takes it upon his lips, and makes it fulfilled through speaking it. And what I find really significant about Psalm 22 is that the writer of Hebrews actually takes another verse in that psalm and applies it to the mouth of Jesus. But interestingly, it is not found on the lips of Jesus in the gospel record. So the writer of Hebrews takes a later verse verse 22 Psalm 22:22 22, 22, and applies it to Jesus it's appropriated by Jesus and he puts it on the lips of Jesus as spoken by Jesus and here's here's what he does in Hebrews 2:11 he puts these words on the on the lips of Jesus I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise so that's immediately following when the psalmist says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And then as proof that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, putting it on the lips of Jesus. Jesus saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Hebrews gives us two pieces of evidence that Jesus himself is not ashamed to identify with us. Number one, he tells us of the Father's name. In other words, Jesus shares with us his knowledge of the Father. Proof number two, he joins us in singing the Father's praise. So as we sing the Father's praise, Jesus, not being ashamed of us, joins with us As one of us, and he too sings the Father's praise. Now, what's the point of this quick fly by look at Psalm 22? What is happening here is that the New Testament doesn't merely see the words of these Psalms that Jesus explicitly spoke, that are recorded for us in the Gospels. As being the words of Jesus. That the New Testament actually looks at the psalm, Psalm 22, and attributes the entirety of the psalm to Jesus. So next week when we look at Psalm 22, we'll see that as it's appropriated by Jesus in its entirety, we actually see more of the beauty and glory of what Jesus has done for us. And that's the way the New Testament wants us to understand the psalms. So this same interpretive approach applies to Psalm 16. So this is written by King David, and it's the prayer of David in the face of some threatening circumstance, we, although we really do not know what the threatening circumstance is. It, it's been suggested that the event, the events of 1 Samuel 22 actually provide the historical backdrop to what we find in Psalm 16. So in 1 Samuel, Samuel 26 David is being pursued by Saul and Saul and his men are driving David out from the promised land trying to kill him driving him out and they actually it actually says that they're trying to remove from David his inheritance and David is taunted with words that he should follow after another god that's why some scholars see that as the historical setting between, uh, behind Psalm 16 here. But whether or not 1 Samuel, is the, 1 Samuel 26 is the historical backdrop, we, we do know that David's life is being threatened that his confidence in the face of this threat and the temptation to follow after another God is conquered through the goodness of God to him. So, In the immediate context of Psalm 16, David is the speaker. David is speaking here. But in his Acts 2 sermon, Peter puts the psalm on the lips of Jesus. Peter identifies Jesus as the ultimate speaker of Psalm 16. Now listen to what Peter says. This is Acts 2 verse 23. This Jesus, Peter preaches delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death. For David says concerning him, and now he quotes from Psalm 16, verses eight through 11, and he puts the words of David upon the lips of Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that i may not be shaken therefore jesus says my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced my flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to hades or let your holy one see corruption you have made known to me the paths of life you will make no you will make me full of gladness in your presence, And then Peter provides this exposition of what he just read. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He died, he was buried, and he's actually still in the grave. Being therefore a prophet, referring to David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses so what is what is Peter doing here He's looking at the unfolding whole Bible context of redemptive history. And Peter sees Jesus as the ultimate speaker of Psalm 16. So even as David penned these words, he knew that he was not their ultimate fulfillment. David knew he had a greater descendant who would bring about what he was writing to ultimate fulfillment. David knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would raise up one of his descendants to bring this to fulfillment. And he foresaw, Peter says, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So this means that the unfolding context of redemptive history sees Psalm 16 as the prayer of Jesus. When Peter put the words of Psalm 16 on the lips of Jesus, Psalm 16 became the prayer of Jesus to his Father. So it provides, and here's what's beautiful when you look at Psalm 16 from this perspective, from Peter's perspective, from the New Testament's perspective, Psalm 16 provides us with an inside look at the kind of relationship that Jesus had with the Father. What kind of relationship did Jesus have with the Father? And when we answer that question, what we see is this is the kind of relationship that we have with the Father right now in life and one day in death. So, let's look at the unfolding and whole Bible context of Psalm 16, and we're going to look at it under this title, Jesus, you And the Father's goodness. Jesus, you, and the Father's goodness. And we'll look at this psalm under two headings the Father's goodness in life and the Father's goodness in death. Now let's read Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken." Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So let's look, verses 1 through 8, at the Father's goodness in life. Now notice, the Father's goodness here is broken into the psalm from the very start. So it permeates the entirety of it and it launches right into looking at the gifts of the Father. So look at verses one and two. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and listen to this, I have no good apart from you. Literally, I have no good apart beyond you, or I have no good in addition to you. So David recognized, so David as speaker first, David recognized that everything good in his life had its origin in God. So whatever the good and wherever it was to be found, it was given to him by God. So as as James says in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, the point in Psalm 16 and the point in John, James 1.27 is that God is always good and he always gives good gifts. And what makes what David says here in, in verse 2 all the more remarkable is that his life is in danger. His, his life is in enough danger that death is a real possibility. So what does David do? He takes refuge in God because he knows that God is good. So, so think of it this way. Apart from God, the word good does not exist. So apart from God, the word good does not exist in the Hebrew language, does not exist in the Greek language, does not exist in German or English or whatever language that you find on the face of the earth, Without God, the word for good does not exist. Good exists because God exists and God is good. Let me say that again. Good exists because God exists and God is good. So even in the face of a life-threatening circumstance... David immediately identifies the goodness of God to him. So that's David as the speaker. Now, we have to remember that as Peter applies Psalm 16 and puts it on the lips of Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate speaker. So Jesus is the primary speaker in Psalm 16. Peter says that, and Paul in Acts 13 also says the same thing about Psalm 16. So both Peter and Paul put the words of Psalm 16 on the lips of Jesus. So Jesus takes up these words upon his lips. And we know that Jesus faced inevitable dangers. We know that Jesus ultimately went to the cross and suffered at the hands of men. Here's Jesus who had nowhere to to lay his head who lived the entirety of his life in abject poverty, who John 1 says came into his own and his own received him not. He was rejected by man. And yet this psalm tells us that through the entirety of Jesus' life, he never doubted the Father's goodness. That Jesus taking these words as his own prayer and as his own hymn, never once doubted the goodness of the Father to him. So Psalm 16, verse 8, think of Jesus making these words his own. I have set the Father always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh, my body will also dwell secure. Verse 10, referring to the Father, you will not abandon me to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not leave me in the grave. Verse 11, referring to the Father, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So as you read through this psalm, there is no hint whatsoever that Jesus doubts the goodness of the Father not for a second. Whatever hardship, whatever persecution that Jesus found himself in, whatever beatings he received, whatever rejection he was confronted with, he never doubted the goodness of the Father. So what does Jesus reveal to us about the Father in this psalm? Remember Psalm 22 says that he will Tell of his Father's name in our midst, and he will sing the Father's praise among us. So what does Jesus reveal to us about the Father in this psalm? God is not a reluctant Father. God is not a Father who has to be won for us by Jesus. In his volume on communion with God, John Owen, the great Puritan, says that many Christians, listen to this, John Owen says that many Christians are afraid to have good thoughts of God. Many Christians are afraid to have good thoughts of God. And then he goes on and says, men think it presumptuous to eye God or see God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. Rather, they judge the Father hard, austere, severe, almost implacable, and fierce, and they think herein that they do well. We Christians find it hard to think good thoughts of God because we do not think that He is good, because we doubt His goodness to us. Did you complain this last week? Did you look at your circumstances and gripe about your circumstances? Did you worry this last week? Are you worried about the coming week? Complaining, grumbling, worrying are evidence that we are doubting what? that the Father is good. We are doubting that the Father is good. Wasn't this the primary tactic of Satan with Adam and Eve in the garden? Wasn't Satan's intention to get Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness of God? When you think about it, That Adam and Eve doubted the goodness of God is really quite shocking. God creates everything, forms Adam and Eve, places them in the garden, and Genesis says, and God looked at all that he had made and says it was what? Very good. They were surrounded by the lushness of the Father's goodness. So I'm going I'm to use the uh, Niagara as another illustration. So I did that a few weeks ago with Psalm 36. It's just what I do. So it's, it has, it's begging for illustrations. I won't do it every week, but this time, yeah, I will. Um, so I talked about Cave of the Winds a few weeks ago. This week is Maid of the Mist. So it's that, it's that boat that you get on, and you, you get on this boat, and you go out into the Horseshoe area of the falls. So I went on that a few times. And uh, remember going out in that book, standing up on the deck, wanting to take pictures, but being awestruck by the size and the power of Niagara as it surrounded me. And they call those boats made of the mist for a reason. Because as you take out your camera and you try to take pictures, you cannot take pictures without... The mist of Niagara just covering your lens immediately. The mist covers your face. It covers your hands. It covers everything. The deck is soaking wet because of the mist, the constant mist. And so as you're standing there on, the, on this boat, mist is everywhere. And it touches you with a tenderness. You have Niagara raging and it sends off this mist that touches you with gentleness and tenderness and you're surrounded by it. You cannot escape it until you get off the boat. So here are Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Everything God has made is very good according to the estimation of God himself. And everywhere Adam and Eve turned, they are touched by the tenderness of the Father who has given them every good thing. And yet the serpent steps in and he leads, he tempts Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness of God. We too are surrounded by the goodness of our father. We, we live in a magical world of wonders. All right, let's, let's think of water here a little bit more. Water is the simplest of things. And yet all of life depends on it. An adult's body is made up of about 60% water. Your brain and your heart are both approximately 73% water. Your lungs are 83% water. We drink water. We shower in water. We use water to cool us down and we use water to warm us up. We throw water balloons at each other. We shoot water guns at each other. We jump into water. We dive into water. We boat on water. We swim in water. We ride waves in water. We do cannonballs in water. Why do we do all this? Just so we can have fun with something that sustains our lives. And we, we live in a world, get what? This is amazing. We live in a world where water actually falls out of the sky. Can you imagine that? Water actually, who would make a world where water, which we need and which we love, actually falls out of the sky? Oh, and, and you can make water by mixing hydrogen and oxygen and adding a spark. Unfortunately, uh, that brought about the destruction of the, of, of, of the hidden, hid, uh, Hindenburg. So I, I just forgot the word. What's the name of that? Uh, Hindenburg, yeah, there we go. By his confidence in the Father's goodness, Jesus was surrounded by it. We are surrounded by it. By his utter confidence in the Father's goodness, Jesus reveals the goodness of the Father to us. But you may think, but well, that's Jesus. He's, he was not a sinner like I am. Jesus always did that which pleased the Father. Of course, the Father's going to be good to him. He didn't have my sin. Well, listen to what Peter says in First Peter three eighteen, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And Paul says in second Corinthians five twenty one, For our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So though we may think that God was good to Jesus because Jesus was perfect, but the gospel says that Jesus took our sins upon himself and was judged on the cross so that his perfection, his righteousness as the perfect man might be given to us. That is the Father's goodness in life and in death. Now look at verse 3. So David moves from talking about the goodness of God, his delight in the goodness of God, his trust and confidence in the goodness of God. And then in verse 3, he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So how can David say this? How can he say in verse 2 that he finds all his good in God? that he has no good apart from God. And then he goes in verse three and he says that all his delight is in the saints. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So how is David able to do that? Well, let me suggest one answer to that question. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes about the very close friendship that he had with Charles Williams, another author, and J.R.R. R. Tolkien. And he remembers when Charles Williams died, he thought he would actually get more of J.R.R. Tolkien, that he would get closer to Tolkien, because Charles was now out of the picture. He missed Charles, he grieved Charles, but he had the thought that now that Charles is gone, I'm going to actually have more of Tolkien, and he found that that was exactly not the case. Listen to what he writes here. If of three friends, A, B, and C, A should die, then B not only Loses, B loses not only A, but A's part in C. While C loses not only A, but A's part in B. So what is he saying here? In each of my friends, Lewis writes, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead... I shall never again see Ronald laugh at a Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. And then he makes this application. Two friends delight to be joined by a third, and three by a fourth, in this, Friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul, seeing him, seeing God in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. So David says, in part, that all his delight is in the saints because it's in the saints that he sees more of the goodness of God, more of the goodness of the Father than he would see if he were isolated. Which is one of the main reasons that we gather together as a corporate body because we see more of God, we see more of the Father, we see more of Jesus, we see more of the Spirit when we gather together because each one of us is relating to God with a certain personality, with a certain life history, and God displays himself to us in ways that he does not display himself to others. And so when we come together, we are each showing more of the facets of God. And so David says that it is in the saints is all his delight. But when we hear verse 3 on the lips of Jesus, let me suggest that when Jesus says that his delight is in all the saints, that it is because his great desire is that he share the love of the Father with us. Now, how do I come to that conclusion? Well, in John 17, verses 24 to 26, we find these words to the Father in the lips of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will tell of their name to my brothers. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus says here, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love, listen to this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So when this psalm is taken up upon the lips of Jesus, Jesus so delights in the saints, he so delights in you because he wants you to share in the love which he has known of the Father since before the foundation of the world. Jesus delights in us so that we can delight in his Father and know the love of the Father for us. And then in verse 4, Psalm 16, verse 4, the Father's goodness is contrasted with those who seek the good life in other sources. Verse 4 says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So if we seek goodness in any other source, then in God the Father, our end is, will be ever-increasing sorrow. So Jesus says, come to me and I will show you the Father. He who comes to me will be shown the Father. Now let's look at the Father's generosity in verses 5 and 6. David writes, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup You hold my lot. The lines have fallen fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So David is using the language of land inheritance here. So we see it in the words portion, lot, lines, and inheritance. So this, this land language links back with God's promise to Abraham that he and his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. So one of the reasons that some scholars think that the historical backdrop to Psalm 16 is 1 Samuel 26 is because of what we find in verse, 1 Samuel 26, verse 19. David is shouting to Saul and to Saul's men, and he says this, "'Your men have driven me out this day,' that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, so here's the taunt that Saul's men taunted David with, go serve other gods. So they have driven him out so that he would have no share in the heritage or the inheritance of the Lord, and they taunted him by saying, you, David, go serve other gods. So in Psalm 16 Verse 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, David essentially says, no land, no problem. How can he say that? Because the Lord himself is my inheritance. The Lord himself is my inheritance. Think of a a public figure that you admire, that you've been following for years, and your paths cross in this really well-known public figure says, hey, uh, I've got a home in the mountains, vacation home, and I'd like you and your family to use it anytime you wish. So a couple times a year, you take your family to this home and you take a week or two vacation. And I guarantee you, you would think that was incredibly generous and cool. And you would tell your friends, so-and-so allows us to use his vacation home in the mountains. We go there every year, a couple times. That's pretty cool. But what if that same individual came to you and said, hey, I would love to grab coffee with you every week for two hours, every week. Just want to spend time with you. They don't mention the home. They just say, hey, I want to spend time with you. How would that make you feel? For me, personally, I would feel more valued, more understood, more seen if he wanted to spend time with me every week for a couple of hours because he wanted to know me. He wanted to give of himself to me. And that's what's happening here with David. He's being told that we're driving you out from your inheritance. But David understands something about God. That what God gives to us is not merely physical, not merely a land inheritance, but what he actually gives to to us is himself. That he is our portion, that he is our inheritance. And David says that he is our cup. That he is the one through whom we are satisfied. When we drink, he is the one who satisfies us. The God who created all things with his spoken word. If you stand before Niagara, you can see it, you can feel it. But from here in Greenville, South Carolina, you cannot see it or feel it. And most of you have not thought of it. And then if you go to the moon, you cannot see Niagara. If you go to the sun, you cannot look back and see the earth. If you go to the edge of our galaxy, you cannot see the solar system, let alone earth, let alone Niagara. And our galaxy is, called, is part of a group of galaxies called the local group, local group, of 54 galaxies. And if you go to the edge of that local group, you cannot see the Milky Way, let alone the solar system, let alone the earth, let alone Niagara, let alone feel it. And then there are thousands upon thousands of groups of galaxies and there are thousands of thousands of larger clusters of galaxies. And you go to the edge of that and you cannot see our local group of galaxies. And it's that God who spoke that into existence who says, I am your cup. I am the one who satisfies you. And if we look at space and the size of it and the scope of it, And we marvel in wonder of what it is God has done. And here he has identified for us as our inheritance, as our portion, as our cup, as the one who satisfies us, as great as the universe is. God has given himself to us. And so when Jesus is looking at his life and he's looking at his impending death, he looks at the Father, never doubting his goodness, and says, You are my cup. You are the one who satisfies me. You are the one who has loved me from all of eternity past. And you love me now and you will love me into the grave and you will love me out of the grave. You are my inheritance. You are my portion. And then we see in verses 7 and 8, the Father's guidance. Verse 7 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. In the night, verse seven, also my heart instructs me. I don't know about you, but my battle with worry is most intense at night. When it's quiet and I'm alone, it's where my mind can go and worry can steal the night hours. And the night hours feel long, long, And dreadful. But such is what Scripture reveals to us about the Father and the Son. Such beauty is to be found there that when it is before our eyes, rest is sweet, rest is refreshing. That's how the Father guides us with the truth of. His goodness to us in Christ Jesus. And then let's close by looking at the Father's goodness in death. The Father's goodness in death, verses 9 through 11. Verse 9: Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corrupt, corruption. So Jesus takes these words upon his lips, and he knows that death will come, that death is inevitable, that he has come to die, that he has set his face toward Jerusalem. But he knows that the Father will not abandon him in the grave. Even though on the cross Jesus will cry out the words of Psalm 22. Verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even when he cries out those words, Jesus knows that the Father will not abandon him in the grave. He is able to approach the coming God-forsakenness that he will experience on the cross, never doubting the Father's goodness because he knows that on the other side of his death, in the grave, he will not be allowed to see corruption, but he will be raised. And as Peter says... When Jesus took these words upon his lips, he knew that death did not have the power to hold him. On the cross, Jesus was cut off from the Father's goodness. But even being cut off from the Father's goodness as he was forsaken by the Father, Jesus knew that the Father's goodness would not leave him. Father's goodness would not abandon him. And then in verse 11, Jesus prays, you make known to me the path of life. So in the unfolding and whole Bible context of Psalm 16, the path of life that was made known to Jesus was the path of death. Jesus knew that the path of death for Jesus, was the path of life. You have shown me the path of life. And that path of life is the path of death. And you will not abandon me to the grave, but you will raise me up. And then he says, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Father's goodness was not limited, restricted by the worst possible circumstance in human history. The Father's goodness was not limited and restricted by His forsaking of His own Son. The Father's goodness, even in the death of Jesus, was in and around and under And over the worst possible circumstance like the Spirit who hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis 1, over the chaotic darkness, over the chaotic waters, as the Spirit hovered over and out of that chaos was brought everything good so that the Father says, behold, everything that I have made is very good. It is just that goodness of the Father that was not held in check. By the worst possible circumstance, but actually by means of the worst possible circumstance, God's goodness exploded into human history. So that Jesus now, our great high priest, who has ascended to the Father and is at the Father's right hand where, there are, where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, Jesus as the resurrected man has taken us with him into the Father's presence. So the Father is good to us in life because we have the surety of Jesus. And the Father is good to us in death because he has given us the Son who was raised from the dead on our behalf and ascended to the Father's right hand so that where Jesus is, that is where we are. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you find that you are fearing death, see in the DNA of your fear, doubt in the Father's goodness. When you find that you are angry, see in the DNA of your anger, doubt in the Father's goodness. When you lust, see in the DNA of your lust, doubt in the Father's goodness. When you lie or deceive, see in your lies, doubt in the Father's goodness. When you refuse to ask for forgiveness... See in the DNA of your refusal to forgive, doubt in the Father's goodness. When you gossip, when you worry, when you see in the DNA of those sins, doubt in the Father's goodness, but be confident in the Father's goodness when you see in Jesus the perfect revealing of the Father's Goodness to us in life and in death. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Psalm 16, that you have revealed to us your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. And we are prone to doubt your your, forgiveness, your goodness. We are prone to think, not to think good thoughts of you, And we are grateful that you have called us to gather together where we may be reminded of your goodness and that our faith might be awakened, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would be given a glimpse of Jesus who is for us your goodness on display. And so strengthen us now as we sing of your love and of your goodness. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.